So as some of you know, last week I got to go to the Dallas area. I got to spend a, a week spending some time in prayer and with some, some mentors of mine. And it's this thing we do a couple times a year. I'm going to be completing its four sessions. I just did the, the third one uh, this week. So thank you guys for your prayers and thoughts about me. I had, had, had a good time and I thought of you and was praying for us as, as, our, as our church also uh, moving forward. It was a great time. But the trip started as, as trips often do with a little bit of drama on my first leg from Burbank Airport. I get onto the flight, everything's going well, and I cannot get my suitcase to not do this. Like it is, and I'm telling you, you think like, oh, it's just you need someone with more strength than Brian, but you just can't. I can't get it. And I get on the flight and I'm thinking, oh no, like this is just not working. And is this going to fit in the overhead space? What's going to happen? And about 10 or 15 people, they all assume they're smarter than me. And so they're coming, they're doing the same thing. Like, hey, obviously you haven't done this trick. Uh, I texted my wife this and she wasn't too compassionate about it because these, this is relatively new and she'd taken a few trips with it and it worked for her. So she thought it was operator error, which is fair. Uh, And this is just not working. And again, it's just people are all around me and trying to to help fix this situation. Um, And it's just that moment when you are that guy, right? You don't want to be like the guy who the weird thing happens to and everybody's like, what is wrong with him? Like, what, how, how, did, how did he get here? Has he never traveled before? You know, like, what, what is his deal? Fortunately, there was a wonderful uh, flight attendant lady who was able to find a space that it would fit in like this way. So it worked out. I had three more legs of that trip, so I had to keep doing that with this thing. And uh, it is just not working. Mandy has not figured out how to do it either. If someone does, it's like the sword in the stone. I don't know. It's going to be if you do it, I would be very happy, but I think it's broken and it's not going to work again. And as I was having this experience flying out to this prayer retreat, I was thinking like, this is a lot of how life is, isn't it? Like there's just these like a little annoying, frustrating things. And wh- whether you're traveling or not, it's just, there's just things that happen. It seems to happen maybe more when you're on the road, but there are these things that are just, just going on and it's just frustrating at times, right? We can admit that today that Life is hard sometimes. It's, it's burdensome. It's difficult. Sometimes it's people cutting you off in traffic. Sometimes it's, th- that, it's that guy who's in front of you in line and you're wondering, how does it take so much time for you to have this conversation? What is happening up there? I have to go get and do some more stuff. Like Life just ends up a lot like this from time to time. And sometimes it's just a little bit frustrating like this and this was kind of annoying and then having everybody try to help me and try to figure that out. Sometimes it's like this and it's just a little bit annoying but sometimes it's worse, right? If we're honest, sometimes it's really difficult and burdensome. And we would ask questions like, God, what, what is happening here? You know, I, I've been pretty faithful to you, I believe. I've done some of the right things. I've tried to pattern my life after your teaching. I've tried to do something. Things just don't seem to work. And the great thing about Scripture is Scripture, I think, invites us into that conversation. It isn't just like this simple, trite answer that just says, you know, it's all going to work out, everything's going to be fine. Actually, no, Scripture invites us to ask difficult questions at times. One of those places that I think you see that is in the Old Testament, the book of Job. If you know anything about Job, spelled like job, you should read it sometime. And in, in Job, from the very beginning, maybe the, the hardest chapter in all the Bible Satan comes to God and basically says, you know what, I know Job's a really faithful guy, but if I was to like mess with him a little bit, then like he wouldn't believe, he still, he wouldn't walk with you anymore. And God agrees to this heinous mega deal that happens with Satan. And then 
Job's life starts to get hashtag unblessed, basically. Like everything starts to get taken away from him. He loses his kids, he loses his stuff, he loses his herds, and he gets a disease. And basically the only thing that makes him feel a little bit better is like using pottery with ashes and just like scraping the sores from his disease. So that is a little TMI, I know, but that's what it says. And so Job loses everything. And his wife at one point comes to him and says, you should curse God and die. Which makes sense because it's her life too. And she's lost a lot as well. And honestly, if that all happened to me as well, I might curse God and die also because it's just unbelievably difficult stuff that's handed to Job. Then his friends come and at the beginning they're silent, but then they start having this conversation and they kind of say to him, well, Job, you must have done something, right? I mean, come on, like this doesn't just happen. You don't just, it's not just like it's a little tragedy. You must have done something. Job, come on, come on, confess now and maybe like you can figure this out with God. And Job basically says, no, I, I, I've lived faithfully. I've tried to do what God has called me to do. And they try to answer that question. And some scholars think that the book of Job, even though it's found in the middle-ish of your Old Testament, was the first book that was written down, which I think is really interesting because people have been asking that question, why, forever. Why does this happen? Why does it seem like people who are shady and people who don't act right, they can get blessed? And then maybe you think, me, you know, I'm, I'm, trying to follow what God has called me to do, and I just don't seem to have that same level of success. In fact, things seem to be extraordinarily difficult for me. Why? Really, Job doesn't address exactly that question. He just continues in faith. And actually, at the end of the book of Job, God does finally show up, and Job's pretty upset at this point. It's a long way through the book, and Job asks some really hard questions of God. And if there's ever a moment for God to like kind of explain it, he could say, just FYI, you know, we had this little deal with Satan, and sorry about that, but um, like it's, it's going to work out and it's going to be a little bit better and you're going to get a name of in, in the Bible someday. You know, thousands of years people are going to be, if there's a time that God could explain, it was right there. God's explanation is somewhat unsatisfying. Basically, it's I'm God and you're not. Do you know where the mountain goats are? No, Job, you don't care about them, but I'm taking care of them too. Basically, I'm God and you're not, and ultimately, will you trust me? Even though things don't seem perfect, and sometimes there's minor annoyances or major annoyances that happen to us, or sometimes there's things like disease or issues, and sometimes there's people that we pray for as a church community, and God doesn't answer that prayer, and sometimes there are things that are happening, just like Job, that we ask the question, why? And the question for us then is, even if we don't have like a satisfactory answer, in the immediate or ever, will we still look and acknowledge the work of God? In Job 13, as he's having a conversation with his friends, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare come 
before him. So what does Job have to do with Philippians, the series that we're looking at together? I'm glad you asked, because that's a good question. In Philippians, as we've talked about, and last week I preached in handcuffs, uh, so you could see Paul's situation there. Um, He is writing this letter from prison, and he doesn't know how it's going to end up. And when we think about prison, we think about perhaps you have a friend or somebody who is in prison, and they have whatever their sentence is, and you think of prison like that. But Roman prison, you weren't in there for all that long. Like generally, it was like the the trial of Jesus. Jesus gets on trial. Jesus, they determine he's to be executed. All right, you know, you're in a holding cell for a while and then you're gone. That was just how it was. So for Paul to be in prison, it's his life is on the line as he is being held there. And he receives this blessing from this church in Philippi. So he writes expressing his gratitude, but he doesn't know what's going to happen with his life. It's a very pressing issue that he might die. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but what's shocking is he writes with so much joy. Over and over again, Paul writes with this amazing perspective, which we'll talk about a little bit more in depth in just a minute, but he has this unbelievable perspective of joy. I think it's because he has his hope tied in the right place. So in Philippians 1 verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It's important that he uses that word there. Paul, if you know anything about him, he was trained to be a Jewish leader. He was trained by one of the elite rabbis of his day. And if you were a Jew during that time, you would have had large portions of scripture memorized. You would just know like books of the Bible, basically. That was how you would learn because in a culture that wasn't available so easy that you could just like call it up on your phone, you would want to be able to have as much of God's words as you possibly can like on your mind. And so if you were using a word, you didn't use it randomly. Randomly. You didn't just say like, well, that seems like a good word there. I'm just going to use that. When Paul is writing, you have to understand that he has Jewish thought and mind in his backdrop. And so when he uses the word deliverance here, I think he's connecting his story a bit to the story of Job. That even though this doesn't make sense, even though he's kind of questioning God, he has some doubts, he has some, it's in a dimly lit cell as he deals with these questions, he says still, I believe in God's deliverance. I believe that ultimately, God is at work. And that might not mean great things for me, perhaps, but I believe that God's redemptive act is still at work. So Paul, in this jail cell, says, even though things aren't working out so well for me, perhaps, and I don't even know what's going to happen in my life, I believe in the deliverance of God. We talked last week about the fact that he likely would have been chained up. Here's a picture of some Roman uh, handcuffs. They're from that era. It's possible that Paul would have been chained up like that, It's also possible that he, because he was someone who was a bit of an enemy of the state at this point, because he's a repeat offender, he finds himself in prison over and over and over and over again. If someone was a little bit more of a highly dangerous suspect, there's a chance that you would have been chained to someone else. Like you would have had a guard with you there all the time. And you kind of wonder if Paul had that experience because he said, it's become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. 
the question then is, okay, through the whole palace guard, like everybody there, well, how does everybody know that? It's because Paul told them, right? And they wouldn't have assumed it. Paul, if he would have had a, a guard at his cell or somebody chained to him, he probably was pulling out his flannel graph pictures, basically, and saying like, hey, let me tell you the story of Jesus. Let me tell you what God is like. Here, how to teach with a flannel graph. Let me tell you who Jesus is. You know, like while you're chained to me, you're kind of a captive audience. So let me tell you. And you know, I, my, my life is on the line here, but like, trust me, you have no idea the bigger story that I'm involved in. You have no idea the redemption that, that God can do. You have no idea what God can do even in this place. And so he says, like, I'm in chains and it's difficult for me. I don't know how it's going to go. Like, but I believe that no matter what happens, God's going to work this out for my deliverance. I was listening to one of, in in a session with one of our uh, teachers at the retreat that I was just on, and we actually were specifically talking about suffering uh, during this retreat. And he was explaining like how to seek God during those times. But he said something that has really stuck with me. He said, but really all of life is a test. You might say it's especially hard to find God when you find yourself in that prison cell or you find yourself in that hospital room. But all of a life, it's hard to find God, isn't it? Like, it's hard to be a good person in your community. It's frustrating to be a parent at times. It can be difficult to find your way in the world. It's not just when we suffer. But Paul, I believe, in all of his life, he found the presence of God, and that is what was able to keep him in this difficult moment with a perspective of joy. Because ultimately, what you need to come to grips with is your joy will share the fate of the thing that you bind it to. Your joy will share the fate of whatever it is that you bind it to. If you want to make money or status the thing, then there might be a time in your life when you're really popular. And that might sustain you for a while but it's not going to sustain you forever. If you make your, your kids your entire life, and you might know some people like this who it's like they go to every practice and it's like the parents are living vicariously through the kids more than the kids are actually enjoying this thing. If you make your kids your ultimate joy, you can crush them because they're not supposed to carry that weight. Your joy will share the fate of the thing you bind it to. And I think Paul, as he's in this difficult circumstance, he is showing us actively on the page how to live in another way. Because in this book, which is just four chapters long, he mentions joy or rejoicing 16 times. Like You just can't help but see the smile that's on Paul's face as he writes to these people. And you want to know how I think Paul has that perspective? 
It's because 51 times in 104 verses, again, this is a small four-chapter book, uh, 104 verses, 51 times Paul mentions Jesus. Every other sentence, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You want to know how Paul can deal with suffering with this perspective? It's because his life is so deeply connected to the story of Jesus Christ on the cross who shows how suffering, even the worst kind of suffering, can be redeemed. So every other sentence, it's Jesus, 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 and Paul writes with so much joy. I think when we when we struggle, when we suffer, when we're in a tight spot, when we feel betrayed, when we're undergoing financial stress, that's when we're tempted to just solve the problem with just a quick, easy answer. Like, I have a lot of debt. This piece of cake will solve it. It maybe makes you feel good for a little bit, but not too long. I have an issue, so I'm just going to go and try to solve it with something else. One of my friends had a poster in his office that said, don't give up what you want most for what you want now. And I think that's a great way to think. Because when we suffer and when we struggle, when things are difficult for us, when we feel betrayed, when we are just feeling the weight of the world on our shoulders a little bit, it's so tempting for us to try and fix it by doing something completely unrelated. And it's in those seasons of life that I think we struggle with, what, what am I really about? And what do I most believe? What's most important to me as I think about my role in the world and what's going to happen next? Do I believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross and then rose again? That God redeemed that suffering? Do I believe that God redeemed Paul's time in prison? Do I believe that God can redeem some of mine? Paul writes to this church and he says, because of who you are, because of the fact that I'm connected to you, and because of God's spirit and presence, I am going to see the deliverance of God no matter what happens with me. I think it shows the great example of what it means to live in, in community, to live beyond yourself. He says, your prayers, even though you're in Philippi and I'm here in Rome, your prayers, I feel the strength of those prayers. I feel what's happening when you remember me. I heard in a podcast recently that the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when Jesus teaches us to pray, we have the, the phrase like, our Father who art in heaven, right? We typically say it that way. But the person on the podcast said a better way to translate that is Father of us, basically. I think it's saying a very similar thing, but in some ways, Father of us just sticks with me better, that it's not just for this one person or this one individual, it's for this community of people. And so Paul writes to this church and he says, one of the reasons I can go on is because I know you are praying for me. And I know that I'm not alone facing this, that God's work goes way beyond just me in this cell. And God's spirit and presence, even though it's hard for me right now, it's with me. It's with us. Paul writes so beautifully 
next. He says, I eagerly expect, and we're going to dive more into this next week, but I eagerly expect and hope that in no way will I be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor to me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. He says right before this verse, I don't fully know what's going to happen to me, but I know that it's going to add to my deliverance, that God is going to be at work and redeeming me through this. And then he says, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I might die. I might go on living. But either way, Christ is going to be living in me. Whether I'm in this cell till I die or I'm out and I get to go out and preach again, I'm preaching to the palace guard. I'm showing everybody who Jesus is. Because this is truly where my hope is. And that, I believe, church, is how we find joy. And that's how a prisoner writes to this small church and says, joy Joy, joy, it's because of Jesus. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of what God does through Jesus. If I think about a modern-day Paul, it's not a perfect parallel, but I can't help but think of Desmond Tutu. If you're, any, if you're familiar with his work uh, in South Africa during apartheid, And I found this picture of him, and in some ways it's an unflattering picture. But the reason why I I wanted to to use that one is if you Google Desmond Tutu images, about half of them are like that. Others it shows a more chill, the kind of picture that are normally shown on a picture like this. And it's a different picture. It's not just like the same picture over and over and over again. It's all these pictures that show like abounding joy coming out of this guy. He's someone who has been in jail countless times. He stood up against apartheid. He's now 81 years old. And there's, there's an article a couple years ago about him doing some activism, and he was in prison at 79. He continues over and over again to look for injustice in the world. He was a big part of the anti-apartheid movement and what happened there. And it's just amazing when you see a picture like that of someone who has struggled and suffered and lived a life for Jesus, but yet it's like he has this joy beaming out of him. I heard him interviewed one time, and he said this. In the book of Daniel, talking about the story of Daniel and the the lion's den, three men are thrown into the fire, and the king comes to see the three men in the fire. And when the king looks in, there are four. The king counts one, two, three, four. I did not put four men in there. Our God is not a God who stands at a distance. Our God is a God who joins our suffering. This is someone who has suffered, struggled, and been in and out of prison. 
Again, you might say, he's like a modern day Paul. But he has so much joy. He wrote an article about Nelson Mandela and his time in prison. And he commented this. So this is Desmond Tutu writing about Nelson Mandela who was in prison for 27 years. When he entered prison, he said, his anger was never greater than his patience or forgiveness. People say, look at what he achieved in his years in government. What a waste those 27 years in prison were. I maintain his prison term was necessary because when he went to jail, he was angry. He was a relatively young man and had experienced a miscarriage of justice. He wasn't a statesperson ready to be forgiving. Go to the next slide. He was commander-in-chief of the armed wing of the party, which was quite prepared to use violence. The time in jail was quite crucial. Of course, suffering embitters some people, but it ennobles others. Prison became a crucible that burned away the dross. People could never say to him, you talk glibly of forgiveness. You haven't suffered. What do you know? 27 years gave him the authority to say, let us try to forgive. Desmond Tutu writing about the blessing of 27 years of prison for Nelson Mandela. 